Our scripture this morning is Romans chapter 1. We're looking at verses 1 through 17 together. Romans 1 verses 1 through 17. We're shifting gears now in the new year to talk about the reality of our sin and our need for Jesus. Uh, And there's really no better place to do that than from the first few chapters of Romans. And this will be my pattern every year in January. I want to look at this question of who are we? What's the matter with us? And why is it that we need Jesus? And it leads us really smoothly into a season that would take us uh, to, to actually encounter Jesus in, in, in the Passion Week, uh, Good Friday and uh, Easter Sunday uh, and, and Palm Sunday. So we're going to meet Jesus, but first we're going to talk about why we need to meet Jesus together as a church. Um, So yeah, it's Romans 1. Being in a big, empty house and the footsteps echoing through the hallway, no one there and no one on the pillow next to you, I will never be happy without having someone. Those words are from Elon Musk. Uh, when he sat down with Rolling Stone magazine back in 2017, the article was really uh, fascinating. It was, it was striking and raw because here sits a man who is a someone, right? He may be one of the most important people living in modern history, someone who is propelling humanity toward driverless electric Vehicles, someone who is building an infrastructure of tunnels under major cities to alter the way we commute to and from work and school, someone who is blasting rockets, it seems like almost every day, into outer space to research more and more this idea of humanity moving from Earth to colonize outer space. This someone, Elon Musk, sat down with Rolling Stone magazine to talk about his technology and what it's like to be one of the great innovative entrepreneurs of our day. And in the interview, he's weeping because his girlfriend had just broken up with him. Isn't that interesting? This isn't the first time Elon Musk has had uh, Issues with relationships. If you uh, look back at his love life, you'll see that he was married for the first time, had six children, ended up in divorce after eight years. Then he got married again. His second wife, they divorced, they remarried, they divorced. And then in 2017, he's talking about this most recent breakup with his girlfriend. Elon Musk wonders if humanity is built for outer space. And yet what dominates this interview is the reality that humanity is really built for relationship. And when meaningful relationships break up, it shakes us to our core. And you know that feeling very well. Whether it's a romantic relationship like what Elon Musk was referring to, or a relationship with a close friend, your relationship with your parents, or watching the relationship between your parents break up. When the relationship is broken, it breaks us. This is why the Apostle Paul is writing to this young church in Rome. He's never been there. 
He hadn't met them yet, but he knows about the ultimate breakup in human history. It's just what Laura Kate said, that mankind and God had a harmonic, beautiful, dynamic relationship full of love and trust and beauty. Shalom. It was good. It was very, very good. And then Adam and Eve collaborated and submitted to their God divorce papers. We're breaking up. We're rebelling against you, God, and your ways. And in that way, they vandalized, they desecrated as if they had spray paint this beautiful relationship. And it would be great if we could sit back, you know, however many thousands of years later and and say, yeah, these guys, I wish they wouldn't have done that, broken this relationship like children of divorce. But the reality is that when you and I participate in our own rebellion against God and his ways, we too are shaking up the can of spray paint and vandalizing this beautiful relationship too. We participate in the brokenness. Paul knows about this divorce. He knows about the pain, the emptiness, the awkward interactions, the shame, the regret that humanity experiences. But he has incredible news. Actually, the Greek word gospel means good news, and it shows up in our passage four times. Paul is is writing to deliver good news to the Romans. What is that good news? Despite the breakup, despite human rebellion, God is getting the relationship back together. God is bringing us back into right relationship with himself through Jesus Christ. How? How could he possibly do that? Our passage shows us in three ways, through messengers, through righteousness, through faith. So I want you to stand and listen for that as I read Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him, we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but I have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles." 
I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, From first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is God's word. Please be seated. Lord, would the meditations of our hearts, the words of your servant's mouth, would they be pleasing in your sight, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. In the name of Jesus we ask. Amen. So how is God going to get the relationship back together? First, God is using messengers to deliver this good news of renewed relationship between God and humankind. Paul is one of those messengers. Verse 1 says it. You get all all these uh, details of the introduction uh, to this letter. Paul says that he works for Jesus. He's a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Um, He uses this title, apostle. And this may be a good moment, I think, to to just mention that I don't think we should use this title, apostle, anymore. This is my perspective. Um, I have some friends who consider themselves apostles. The reason I think we probably shouldn't use that title anymore is because when you look at it uh, systematically, biblically, from the scriptures, you'll see that an apostle is at least four things. An apostle is someone who has been specifically commissioned by Jesus himself. An apostle has seen Jesus after his resurrection, like Paul has seen Jesus in Acts 9. An apostle establishes the church And fourthly, an apostle has the power to write down the authoritative, binding words of God, the scriptures. Paul was an apostle. He had that title. I don't think we're apostles. Paul's role was to deliver the message, the good news. Paul is not the first messenger because verse 2 says that this good news had been promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. So all the Old Testament was preparing people's ears and people's hearts to hear and experience what? The ache. The longing for God to get the relationship together. The longing to be restored with their God through the coming Messiah, Jesus And so Paul joins hundreds or thousands of years later a chorus of other messengers communicating this same good news that our only hope is the Messiah that God will provide. Paul is not the first messenger and he's not the first messenger actually to the Romans. Um, Here's what you uh, need to know and I'll give us a a very short history lesson to orient us in this book. Paul hadn't visited Rome before as he said. Um, he had tried, but it always fell through. It didn't, it didn't work out. Um, we suspect that Paul is writing this letter to the Romans uh, in the year 57 AD, roughly, 57 AD, while he was in Corinth. 
which means that Paul did not plant the church in Rome. This church had existed, we think, for 27 or so years. Who planted it? Our best guess is that uh, people who were in Acts chapter 2, Jerusalem, uh, at Pentecost, went back to Rome after that experience and planted uh, this church that Paul writes to, because we're told in Acts 2 that there were visitors from, well, all over, but Rome in particular. Um, we also suspect that Priscilla and Aquila, uh, who we meet in the book of Acts, may have been part of that original church plant, which is beautiful. Part of that core group, similar to the way you are part of this core group. The church started with mostly Jewish Christians. But that changed when Emperor Claudius kicked out all the Jews from Rome in the year 49 or 50 AD. Why were they kicked out? It's really interesting. Because of this guy, Crestus. Crestus was causing this uprising, this disturbance. Crestus is a variant spelling of Christus or Christ. It was the presence of Jesus that was creating this uprising. And so Emperor Claudius did what he thought was the right thing, which was to kick all the Jews out of Rome, which left this fledgling church plant essentially only Greek Gentile. Okay, it grows with this Greek Gentile population and eventually the Jews are allowed to come back to Rome. And now it is a multicultural church, very much like we are a multicultural church. And that is okay. Actually, that is a beautiful, beautiful thing, because back to our passage, this good news is for all types of people, Jews and Gentiles. Verse 16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. God is bringing all kinds of people into relationship with himself. He delights in communities like this. And it may be that if you were here this morning and you're not in relationship with God, that he is at work right now to bring you into relationship with him. That you're part of this big, beautiful story of redemptive history. Wow. It's good news. How exactly is God doing this? Well, through messengers. And Paul adds, through righteousness. Verse 17 For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Um, It's through righteousness. Righteousness is a very churchy word. So let's try to define it a little bit. Uh, What is righteousness? You may not use that word a lot, but you understand the concept very well. Uh, One of my mentors described righteousness this way. He's like, just think of sufficiency or think of being enough. Righteousness is being enough. And so when your boss sits you down um, for your year-end review, she's evaluating righteousness. Um, This year, you produced enough. This year, you uh, you were diligent enough in this area. That's an assessment of righteousness in a sense. 
When you get your grades back from your studies or from some big project, that is an assessment of righteousness. You are hardworking enough. You didn't try hard enough. When a 13-year-old girl stands in front of the mirror and asks herself, am I pretty enough? Am I thin enough? She is making a statement in her mind, twisted as it may be, of righteousness. The young man standing in the gym looking in the mirror, flexing, am I strong enough? That too is an assessment of righteousness, being enough. As best I can tell, I'm not Norwegian, obviously. Um, A couple of the righteousness measures that I see as pretty significant in this culture uh, is people want to be self-sufficient enough. I don't need other people. I can handle this. I don't want to be a burden. And people want to be green enough, at least in Oslo, that seems to be a high value. These are all expressions of righteousness. In the gospel, Paul says, it's not the righteousness you're talking about. The righteousness of God is revealed. And you may be thinking, I don't, I'm not sure what that is, but I kind of get a sense of my own righteousness and comparing it to God and God's righteousness being revealed I don't know if that's a good thing. That might actually be a scary thing, the righteousness of God. And if you're thinking that, you're thinking exactly the way Martin Luther was thinking 500 years ago. In Wittenberg, at the university there, in the year 1515, he had started to teach through the book of Romans. He was perceptive and educated enough to understand that verse 17 Uh, This little verse was actually the thesis statement for the whole book of Romans. And maybe, he thought, the thesis statement for Christianity itself. But this phrase, the righteousness of God to Luther, was not a good thing. It was not good news. He said, because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous, namely me. What was he saying? When I compare myself to God, it is clear that I am not enough. And actually, this is something that every major world religion shares in common. Every major world religion says, yeah, there's something wrong with whoever God is and the rest of us. We're not enough compared to whoever that God is is. Christianity says that too. Luther was saying that too. I'm not enough. And and so I better work really, really hard to be enough so that I can be in relationship with God. And I better not mess it up because the righteousness of God means that I am doomed if I mess this up. But then he got it. I mean, this almost drove him crazy. But then he got it. After his despair, He writes, night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. Then I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise 
The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. Wow. Is the righteousness of God that to you? Is it inexpressibly sweet in greater love? Why would it be? Explain it this way. When you stand in front of the mirror of God's righteousness, we're not enough. What looks back is not enough. Not holy enough. Not devoted enough. You don't pray enough. You don't act morally enough. Even those of us who have been around Christianity for a little while and know how to pretend, at least on the outside, to be righteous enough on the inside aren't because we have hearts that are all twisted up and soured with pride. The only person who has ever stood in front of the mirror of God's righteousness in a worthy manner was Jesus of Nazareth. And the father calls out over his son, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He's enough. That's what God is saying. Look, he is enough. The book of Hebrews picks up on this. It's all about this point. Jesus is enough and says that the son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. In other words, he is God's righteous mirror image. This is one of the things that makes the cross of Calvary so scandalous. Because the mirror switch, you can think about it like one of those big oval mirrors that you can turn. The mirror switch on the cross of Calvary. 1 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul writes, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. This is what Luther would call an alien righteousness. On the cross, the Father looked at the Son and saw our reflection. On the cross, the Father looks at us and sees the reflection of Jesus, all of his righteousness and perfection. It's ours, an alien righteousness that is ours by faith. The perfection of his son Jesus is ours. This is Luther's great exchange and it would alter world history. The only reason you and I are here this morning and the only reason Norway is what it is and the rest of the world is the way it is is because of this discovery, this little verse that rocked human history. At its core, it's about this. The great exchange. Wrath for righteousness. Righteousness revealed is ours through Christ. Now, we could just limit that to a legal declaration. Okay, well, Jesus condemned and me not condemned. Guilty, innocent. But this is, my friends, a relationship. This is a relationship. The father on the cross divorced his son so that you and I could be in right relationship with him. This isn't just standing in front of an approving or a disapproving mirror. Son, this report card is not good enough. You didn't try hard enough. God is more than a judge. God is Father. God is Father. 
And this is dripping with relational words, not just with legal words. Luther was dripping with relational words, inexpressibly sweet in greater love. And this relationship, like all relationships, requires something from you. Faith, trust, belief. A righteousness, verse 17, that is by faith from first to last. Now that little phrase, by faith from first to last, is hard to translate. The ESV says that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And I think that's kind of helpful because it looks like an image. It looks a little bit like a circle of faith as in coming out of faith for the purpose of faith where we get faith to give more faith. And we can be tempted to go, oh no, it looks like I've got to be faithful enough now. I have to have enough faith, but that's not how this is working. That's not what Paul is saying. Because Paul elsewhere is going to say, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Wait, what is the gift of God? The grace or the faith? Yes. Both. Grace Faith, gift of God, it's given freely to you. This is how you know that God loves you and wants to get the relationship back together because the faith that he requires is a faith that he, out of his grace, gives to you freely. You don't pay for it, you don't deserve it, you just receive it and respond to it. We are dependent on God, the God who loves us, to give us faith in him And that faith in him ought to produce what? More faith, which looks like what? Dependence and obedience to his ways. Verse five, Paul has called to come all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Like it says, again, the end of verse 17, he's quoting Habakkuk. The righteous will live by faith. You and I are in restored relationship with God because Jesus was enough. And the application is that we ought to live our lives in obedience to him. Why? Because Jesus is enough. Not to get something from God, but as an expression of what we already have. Jesus is enough. This is ultimately what Elon Musk really needs to believe. He's looking for someone who's going to love him and never leave him, right? He doesn't want to be alone. Well, you could follow his romantic history from 2017 and see that he's been through a few other relationships and a few other children with other women. And guess what? He's discovered still not enough. Only God through Jesus will be enough because we were made for relationship with him and nothing else will satisfy us until we are resting in him, nothing. Um, I heard this from another pastor years ago and then it went viral. Um, It's uh, from a book of like just practical ordinary liturgies that you can do as a family. Um, This one is called A Nighttime Blessing of Gospel Love, Good News Love. And you're supposed to share it with your children. And the book gives you instructions like put your hand on your child's head or your hands on your child's face and say this. 
Do you see my eyes? Yes. Can you see that I see your eyes? The child says, yes. Do you know that I love you? Yes. Do you know that I love you no matter what good things you do? Yes. Do you know that I love you no matter what bad things you do? Yes. Who else loves you like that? God does. Even more than me? Yes. Rest in that love. Rest in that love. There's nothing better I can say to you this morning than to rest in that free love of God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Um, Lord, thank you for this um, little piece of uh, ancient history that it has relevance in our lives, that everything we need you have provided. Um, All of our striving would be losing if it were up to us. So we thank you for Christ, the generous gift of grace through him, and we plead for the Holy Spirit to cause us a restless people, an insecure people, a people uh, fearful of abandonment and rejection. You would help us to be a people who rest in the security of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.